What up artists? My name is Dwayne Jones. I'm the creative director and founder of a lifestyle brand called Art Pays Me. This is the Art Pays Me podcast and I'm passionate about finding ways that people like you and me can make a living for ourselves off of our creativity and you know maybe we can make the world a better place at the same time. Let's get into it. All right, so uh, this week we got Bo Cleeton. So, Bo, tell, tell everybody what it is that you do. Um, I am the CEO of Canadian Lumber. I also am a product developer and an artist. Yeah, Bo and I go way back, actually. Uh, I met Bo when I was at NASCAD and... Uh, one of those guys we kind of just stayed in contact over the years and he's uh evolved into a lot of different things and um (laughs) it's it's very interesting what did you what did you actually go to nascad for initially initially (laughs) i initially went to nascad for sculpture sculpture i I thought you were going to say photography no photography ended up being like the focus of my studies after changing my degree a couple of times. Wow. Yeah. So like what, what led to the change of things? Of degrees? Yeah. Uh, in all honesty, that was just because when we were at NASCAD studying, I realized that, it was my one opportunity to play in a sandbox for lack of a better metaphor. Mm. Um, As awesome as sculpture was and as as interesting and as fun as I found it to be, there's just so many, so much else for me to try and experience. So I spent, I spent two semesters, one summer and one fall, taking everything but what I needed for my degree. (laughs) Like I took jewelry, printmaking. I took especially art art history classes, intro to painting. Like I, you name it, I took it. It was my opportunity to play, I felt. And after that, I had a bit more focus. I ended up adding like a couple more minors and change my focus to photography. That makes sense. That makes sense. Cause like when I talk to you, you seem to be so knowledgeable in, in a lot of different creative aspects and that, that, that explains it. I can't. Yeah. By the time I left in all honesty, it was like a major in photography with minors and art history, graphic design, fine art. All, like it was just because I had so many credits from, testing the waters in a bunch of different disciplines. I actually like looking back to those days, wish that I did more of that. I, um, it wasn't until like I left and years later realized, Oh, I started a clothing company. So it would have been nice if I knew about printmaking and how that whole process works. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the, I'm really glad I took the fashion classes that I did take when I was at NASCAD because those, I ended up using all of them. Right. 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 Developed from, from developing products with you to developing products for other clients when I worked in marketing. Right. Like it, it, the fashion degree actually was working towards that for a little while ended up being something that, was super beneficial to me. Also then in the end, because I ended up teaching in a fashion department, right? Like, but I was teaching the business management side of it, the marketing management side of it, not the actual making of clothes when I was teaching later in life. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Bo kind of alluded to something. So (laughs) this right here is, is the guy that I give a lot of credit to for, the existence of art pays me as it is today. So I worked with his company um, at the time 
And uh, I was looking for some kind of like branding and marketing guidance. And as I tell the story, we were kind of spitballing different ideas about how to take my B Glitterati, which was the name of the brand at the time, to the next level. And I had this one t-shirt that had Art Pays Me on it. And Bo suggested, hey, you know, have you ever thought about renaming the brand? And I was like, well, you know, kinda, maybe, whatever. <laughs> and he was like, well, you know, you've been hashtagging this Art Pays Me thing all, all on Instagram and everywhere. I was like, yeah, I have. And we checked it, noticed I was the only one that was using it. And you were like, if you don't take this, I'm gonna take it. So <laughs> <laughs> that was my last resort statement because in all honesty, Dwayne, like I had, I knew that you had a session booked with my team. Like, so at that point in time, just to give it a little bit of history, I owned uh, a creative agency that we focused on branding, brand development or rebranding. We also did a lot of product development for some companies. Um, but those products ranged from machines right through to promotional items. So it was a wide spectrum of products that we looked at. But when you came into your session that time, like I knew you were coming in that week. I had, after sitting in a couple of the sessions and talking to my staff about your sessions, in all honesty, it was very clear to me that you needed to not just re, it wasn't a pivot that you needed. You needed to rename and rebrand. You needed a full restart. And the only reason why I felt that way was mostly, in all honesty, Dwayne, was because of how you talked about a couple of pieces of art, a couple of pieces of clothing that you had at the time in your, in your catalog. And it was just the passion that you talked about those particular articles. And it was because those articles were making very bold political statements um, or cultural, subcultural statements. And it was, it was that, it was both your approach to that prod, to those products and how much you, how much you basically lit up the room when you talked about them. So it was, in comparison to the other products you had at the time, this was, I could see that there was energy there. And at the same time, with that said, you know, specifically that Art Pays Me t-shirt, I knew right away, I was like, that's the name. Mm. And, and so coming into that session, I had purposefully set up some workshops for us to do so that that name would be up on the wall in front of you intentionally. And, and along with other brand ideas, it was a brand exercise that we were working on that afternoon. And I, and I, I was having a hard time, I admit, having you realize that a rename and a rebrand would have been good for you at the time. And so that's why I say it was my last ditched effort to say, if you don't rename it or pays me, I'm taking that name. <laughs> uh, I feel manipulated. hundred <laughs> percent, dude. And, and it was, it was because at the time, like I saw your struggle that you're having the, but along with that, there are certain things that you're doing where there wasn't any struggle. It was easy for you to produce that item. That item resonated with your audience and it spoke on behalf of who you wanted the brand to be. May not have been what that brand was at the time, but those items spoke to what the brand should have been. And because of that repeated pattern that I'd been seeing from you that in that year leading up to us working together on this project, it was abundantly obvious in, your, in all of these workshops that we did right? With you and the rest of my team at the time. So yeah, I, 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 I didn't know at that point when I walked into that workshop with you that day, I didn't know that Art Pays Me was going to be the name of your brand. It was one of the names that I personally really loved for you. I just knew at the end of that session, I needed you to want to change the name mm. because I needed you to see how good some of these products were that you were producing because of the fact that there was no struggle for you to produce them. There was no struggle for the audience to, to, to want them. Right. Mm. And 
it was interesting. What's interesting to me was during that workshop, seeing you come out of it with this easy gravity towards our pays me. And the fact that it also spoke to my whole team, let alone me, the fact that when we were all in that workshop going through it, everyone in that room kept coming back to that name. And when they did, the way that you talked about the brand, the name art pays me, and it was already a brand in the room at the time. Yeah, yeah. So the fact that you've taken the brand from that room to where it is now doesn't surprise me in the least because everything you said in that workshop is exactly what the brand is right now. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, and, you know, I'll, I'll dig into that more too, like what Bo is getting at and what I sort of learned is with Be Glitterati, I had been reading a lot of streetwear blogs and I just, I had been in at that point inspired, I would say by a lot of those other t-shirt brands that were out there and not that I was copying their designs, but I think I was copying their energy in a lot of ways and not necessarily yeah. leaning into my authentic, authentic voice. Cause it's like, it's scary to, to do something that you haven't seen anyone else do before. And the art pays me thing was something I hadn't seen, even though I really felt it was authentic to me. And uh -huh. yeah, it was good to have that, that external push to say, no, man, it's, it's actually better to, to niche down and um, lean into your true vision. And, and yeah. That meeting I, I remember like, Cause it wasn't like I had just started the brand that the brand had probably oh, no. for like two or three years at that point. So, you know, I had some investment, um, like personally and everything like it. So it, it time was, and money, time and money. Yeah. It was a little sad <laughs> I, at that point yeah. to like, let it go. But after that meeting, I really came to the like belief that, you know what, Sometimes it's just, it, it, you just need that pivot. And now I've actually in this, you know, me starting this podcast and leaving change of the narrative, uh, it was easier to leave change in the narrative because of how that transition went with our pacing, because I realized sometimes you got to lean into like your authentic voice a little more and, and pivot mm -hmm. is, is sometimes important. Oh, it's very important. And, and it's not just you, like in my time working in the marketing, like I worked in marketing for I don't know, 15 years about, and, and it, it, you know, there were some really, really big multi-million dollar companies that I rebranded mm -hmm. and no matter how big or how small the entity is, a rebrand is a difficult thing for the person at the helm of that brand to take. It's a big pill to swallow Yeah, because like you said, time and money and being the one in the weeds. It's hard sometimes to see how big the field is that you're standing in. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. So it, 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 it's, it's not just you, like every other client that I dealt with when it came to a rebrand, it was a difficult conversation. It was always, how many meetings do you think it'll take for us to convince this idea? <laughs> That's what my team would say, right? It'd uh, be a conversation of how long is this going to take? Because question again, comes down to time and money, right? Yeah. Um, on their side of how much time it's going to take to do the rebrand, how much it's going to cost to replace all signage and everywhere where that brand name is. Uh, right down through to how is this going to affect the the buying consumer that we have, right? Um, whether your business is a B two B or B two C, that these are all very valid questions and all everything that needs to be taken into consideration because these are all these are your stakeholders in that brand. It's not just the employees. It's not just the owner of a company, the consumer, manufacturers, everyone else in and around it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it becomes a living, breathing thing in a lot of 100%. ways. <laughs> so, yeah, 100%. it really felt like I killed a person when I said Big Glitterati wasn't going to be a thing anymore. 
Uh, I've actually recommended to other artists uh, before that have had smaller brands and changed them that they actually script it and write it out as if they're killing a, a, a personal identity and mm. birthing a new one. Um, and, and in all honesty, the people that know, I have a bit of knowledge in Halifax's hip hop history. I tend to use, uh, Rich Turfrey. Is that his right? How you pronounce his last name? Um, yes. stinking rich, oh, yeah. uh, otherwise known as buck 65. Mm-hmm. He buck 65 is how majority of people know him. His, an older persona of his was stinking rich. And there's an album where as stinking rich, he kills off one of his other stage personas because he didn't want to be that stage persona anymore. He felt as an artist, he had released and produced all the material that he was going to do underneath that guise Mm. with that image from that persona. Right. And it's the same thing as an artist when you're producing work, whether that's a fashion output, whether you're a designer, whether you're, even it, it even if if it's fine art or commercial art, it, it doesn't matter, right? At some point in time, for a lot of people, they're producing stuff underneath their own moniker for stuff. Sometimes that moniker has to change, right? Yeah. Because they've changed, they've grown. So has their audience. Yeah. Yep. Now you had a clothing brand back in the day. I had a clothing store. Yeah, a clothing store. With that store, we produced our own clothing. Ah, okay, okay, gotcha. Yeah. I did have a sub-brand within that store. The store was called Crisp. I had a sub-brand called Shithawk. Okay. But really, it was a sub-brand of the store. Gotcha, gotcha. It's the way we did that. Right. So how did you find the physical retail situation like, what was that experience like? I, uh, I got into streetwear retail in a different way because I was working as a buyer for a while um, in streetwear. And one opportunity led to another where I just had people that were interested in opening a store and I became partners with them in doing so. Um, it was interesting. For me, it was more of a creative project than anything else. I wasn't... Once the store was open and running, I realized I didn't really want to be there anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I love naming the store, designing the showroom, buying the product for it, creating basically a persona for what that retail store was going to be. Um, For Halifax, it was way ahead of the curve. Yeah. I was like three years ahead of the buying audience in this city. But, you know. I had fun. Yeah, streetwear was like, it hadn't really hit yet. So you were really early in that. Yeah, it hadn't hit in this city yet. I was bringing labels from LA and New York that weren't even, that were only in like one store or two stores in Toronto at that map, that, for that matter. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it was a lot of the brands the store were carrying were cutting edge for Canada as a whole, let alone for Halifax. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's that's, that's and a challenge. It, that was a challenge. Plus two for me, I wasn't in the mental space, or nor did I want to be a manager, right? Mm-hmm. I didn't really have that experience to manage staff at that point in time. I, up to that point in time, I'd worked as an art director in animation and in marketing. For me to step out and work as a buyer and then suddenly be part owner in a retail space where I was responsible for staff and everything else, it wasn't the right decision for me. Um, I wasn't mentally prepared for that kind of responsibility, nor do I think in hindsight was I mature enough for that responsibility. Right. So is that why... That's also part of the reason why I was the smallest shareholder involved in that business. Ah, okay. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah. I recognized that going in, you know, yeah. like, uh, I didn't want to bear the bear the brunt of the weight. Hmm. So, like, when you transitioned into doing your marketing company, is that why it was like I prefer to be involved in the creative part and then let it go? Is that hundred percent? Okay, hundred percent. And and yeah, it, it, I, in all honesty, too, even starting napkin wasn't something that like I 
I got up one morning and said, I'm going to open up my own creative agency or my own marketing firm. I didn't, didn't do that. It was, I was freelancing at the time. I'd done a hand, a number of short-term contracts with a bunch of agencies in the city. And as it turned out in that year, I was ended up getting more freelance work than I was contract work from any agency. I was getting so much freelance work. I ended up having, having to hire uh, another designer to help me out had to hire a web developer to also help me out. And the next thing you knew, like I was there with three subcontractees. So I basically, the only thing separating me at that point in time from actually having an actual company was an office space and making them employees. So I did just that. (laughs) Just like that. Yeah. I just was like, all right, I'm going to register a business then make you guys all employees and everyone was super good with that they were excited for it because majority of their work was coming from me anyway at that point in time cool that's uh yeah it's interesting i always wonder like how that that process works um when someone goes from freelancer to agency um so i think for me it was different than most to be honest with you though okay Explain from other people I've talked to, they made an intentional decision to open up an agency. Okay. Right. They had portfolio of clients or they've been in the marketing world for a while, long enough. At that point in time, like I had been an art director and mostly in animation, a little bit marketing for like, uh, three, four years. And then was in fashion for two years and then stepped back into marketing mm-hmm. solely, no animation whatsoever, just marketing. Yeah. And a year and a half after that, I'm opening up napkin. Yeah. Wow. Like it, 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 it's, it was me taking, taking hold of opportunity. Mm-hmm. Like the contracts were there. I had, the, I had the people, the human resource factor was there for me. Mm-hmm. Like most people, when they go to start an agency, they're starting it looking for clients. That wasn't the case for me. Mm. Okay. It was, I'm going to try and find some cheap office space that I can make this as profitable as possible. <laughs> gotcha. So, and you were teaching at the same time this was all happening, right? Am I correct? I started teaching a year after I started napkin. Okay. How did the teaching part fit into all of that? Was it just making life crazy or were the students sort of an energy booster for you? Well, both. (laughs) It definitely made my life way too hectic. I definitely made my life more complicated than it needed to be. But also at the same time, those students were without a doubt a lifeblood for me. Um, it, 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 it stemmed in all honesty because I knew the department head uh, there and she had reached out to me because I had been involved in a number of uh, fashion events in the city over the years. And Michelle just reached out. She was like, you're a successful young entrepreneur. You know fashion. Um, would you be interested in helping me with business courses in the fashion department and at first I was no no I got enough on my plate and then when I saw she sent me the curriculum and I was like oh my god can I rewrite this curriculum please um, <laughs> and that was the kicker for me like me being able to come in sit down with her rewrite some of the curriculum a good chunk of it and yeah meeting the kids was the big thing like these I was dealing with a lot of kids that came from rural areas of Atlanta, Canada that were looking for a way out. And for a lot of these kids, being into fashion was weird for them, being from the small towns that they were from, because everyone else does trades, plumber, electrician, etc., or they're fishermen, right? So for these kids to be into fashion and take the risk of, for them moving to a big city, for them getting out of their small town, and then at the same time, for their interest and knowledge that they did have, I was like, yeah, you guys are awesome. I'm all over this. Nice. Right. Right. Like, 
But it, it, it's good because some of them have continued in fashion and are doing quite well. Some of them have started their own small brands here. Some of them are working for bigger designers now. It's awesome. Cool. So, I love hearing back from them. Yeah, I, the, I can imagine. I, I'm talking about teaching in one of the previous episodes, and it's one of those things that I definitely am curious about exploring at some point. Um, it's Yeah. Timing probably isn't great right now, but... Hey, one thing I've learned in all honesty, Dwayne, timing's never right. So if opportunity <laughs> knocks, just take it. Just take it, right? Yeah. Just take it. Oh, you never know if you're going to have that opportunity again. That's just... that. I started doing that a long time ago, and I, I, I've never regretted it. Okay. All right. Cool. Right. So when the opportunity... Like, I never, in all honesty, I never thought of teaching. A number of people, friends of mine in the past, sure, would come up and be like, hey, you'd be a good teacher in this. And I'm like... But, like, part of it was in my head, because you always heard, as I did anyway, growing up, that if you can't do, you teach. And it was yeah, kind so, of... I always thought of that as a slag on teachers, right? Yeah. They have, in my mind, they have the hardest job in the world. But um, it... it, it, uh, it it just never dawned to me that I would really be into it or something like that. But when the opportunity came, I was like, yeah, I'm going to try this. This looks fun. And it wasn't just fun. It was, I swear I learned as much, if not more than the students did because they were giving me a perspective into a, an age group that I am no longer a part of. Um, but also at the same fact, they were giving me a, perspective on the world that they see and that they endure that I just don't have mm. bottom line. Right. And it was that perspective that really in all honesty fueled me, fueled me a lot with my clients with napkin, to be honest with you. Mm. Mm. That's interesting. All the time. It'd be like, even as simple as, you know, a client being like, we want, to do a series of billboards and it looked like this. And I'm like, that's not on trend anymore. <laughs> yeah, and I know because I teach that age group. <laughs> right. You have a focus group right in front of you every class. Yeah. Three, t three afternoons a week. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So where did, where did you actually grow up? Um, I, uh, as a kid, uh, like grade school wise, I grew up in Port Perry. It's a small town and, mid-northern Ontario, just like north of Oshawa by a bit. But by high school, I was living in Toronto. Uh, the neighborhood I grew up in was basically just below Jamaica Town and just to the side of Portuguese Town in Toronto. Okay. And that's pretty much where I, from grade nine till university, that's where I was. Uh, okay. It, it makes sense because one of the things that I remember standing out about you when we were at NASCAD was I felt like there was that hip hop kind of cultural connection that I didn't see <laughs> many other cats have at, uh, at NASCAD at the time. No, this was not the student culture we had at NASCAD at the time for sure. Yeah. No, man, like I grew up in a hip hop culture. Like I, that's, I grew up, I grew up sitting on the edge of the basketball court in my neighborhood. Right. Right. Uh, the first pair of Jordans I bought got jacked from me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know it. I was a white kid living in a neighborhood that was not white. <laughs> I was super stoked on my new pair of J's walking home and I ended up walking home with my sock. Dude said, but, that you know, like food right there. I stood out. Right. But, you know, it after a while, I mean, after living in that neighborhood for so long, it, sure, you're position changes and your relationships change and everything else. But I love that part of my upbringing. Like I, that's my, one of my favorite parts of my upbringing was growing up in that neighborhood. The friends I had, the shows, the people, everything, like everything about it was perfect. Mm -hmm. I had a Jamaican family beside me. That was the first time I smoked weed. I had a Portuguese family on the other side of me. That was the first time I drank wine because the Portuguese family made their own wine with some grapes in their backyard and the Jamaican family grew weed in their backyard. It was like some of the most, I, looking back on it, I realized just how beneficial it was for me multiculturally, but at the same time, just how beneficial it was relationship wise. I mean, 
that point in time for me, I was growing up with a single parent, just it was me and my father and dad wasn't there most of the time, but I had six mothers on my block. Mm, got you. Like without a doubt. And if I did anything wrong, my dad was calling me because he's like, so-and-so just called me and was like, what is going on? Mm-hmm. Right. That whole community. Right. And people don't think about Toronto as being that, that way, actually. Oh, it totally is. It totally. Is. That's why you have in Toronto this, this it, as, it, as an extreme multicultural city as it is, you have, this, you have strong community pockets going from one to the next, to the next, to the next. And, and it, each one, it's just, it, it, it is that in each residential area. Like I, I knew all my neighbors mm-hmm. more importantly, actually all my neighbors knew me. <laughs> Got you. Got you. I, I know that feeling growing up in Bermuda is the same way. They all knew my parents. They all knew my grandmothers, my grandfather, yeah. like try something. The word's going to be out. And it's, it's a wrap for you when you get home. So <laughs> I think that's part of the reason why I've since moving to Halifax, I stayed in the North end. Mm, yeah. Very tight. Like the families that I've became friends with in my first couple of years of moving out here and going to school, I'm still friends with that, those families. Like I've seen those kids grow up, go to high school. There's one family where their daughter's graduating high school this year and I just was over at their house literally last night to see their daughter in their prom dress trying it all on getting ready for the for the big day in a couple days do you know what I mean yeah like that this the north end of Halifax feels like it's just a smaller version of the I say smaller only the buildings are smaller but like a smaller version of the neighborhood I grew up in in Toronto interesting interesting now I don't doubt that a part of that is because of the diversity that exists in the north end with it being mostly black or people of non-white to be honest with you up until recently i'll say Mm -hmm. it's being very gentrified right now yes that said the city as a whole i feel is starting to become more multicultural overall um is that is that same effect happening in the north end or no yeah, the same effect is happening in North End. I mean, major reason why is because we have accepted a lot of refugees into the city, which is a great thing for the city. Um, the other side of it is that I think, anyway, we are seeing, we have seen an increase in students staying after university. Yeah. And that is right there, the one thing that would change the city of Halifax. If we could get more, more students to stay after school, that would change the whole economic value of the city, the diversity value of the city, the consumerism of this city, the cultural effects of the city, all of it. Yeah. Because it's young professionals that can change that. I agree. Uh, just, I remember going to school with a lot of, and not even people I went to school with, just I hung out with a lot of international students when I was in school and mm-hmm. a lot of talented, smart people were here and left. Oh yeah. I mean, even a lot of students that are from Nova Scotia or Atlantic Canada, when they come, go into university, the first thing they think about is when they're done is where they're going to go. It's not, yes. what are they going to do here? <laughs> it's where are they going to go? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, 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 which is a painful thing for me to hear because my first response to that is I'm from Toronto and I made the decision to stay for one there's, there's a number of reasons why I did, but the first one is why be a small fish in a big sea when I mean, you could be a big fish in a small pond? Absolutely. Like, yeah, without a doubt, we have our trials and tribulations in this in our in our region of Canada, right? The city, you know, and you've knocked on a lot of doors and didn't get a lot of doors open for you. Mm-hmm. Right? We have, which there were issues in and around that. But like we do have our hurdles in this city. But if you were going to Toronto, if you went to New York, how many more doors would you have knocked on? Yeah. How many more shoes would you have worn out in the pavement? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, you know, right? with that said, uh, so this Tyler Perry thing came up at the BET Awards recently about building your own tables. And I find like in a city like Halifax, guys like us can build our own tables a lot mm-hmm. more effectively and I, have greater impact than we could in a bigger city. Absolutely. 
So, Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's that side of it that really kind of made me because I initially wanted to move to TO too. Like that, I was I had my sights set on a bigger city, but the idea that when I when I st- once I started to really catch the entrepreneurship bug or the business owner bug, I realized, man, you can really make impact in a smaller city and still have connections in larger cities if you really want to. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it, it's it's not it, the other side of it too that a lot of people don't realize is that it's easier to reinvent yourself in a smaller city than it is a bigger city. I feel which is contradiction I know what most people would think because they think in a bigger city it's easier to because you're dealing with a bigger population, et cetera, et cetera, right? People will have a shorter memory. Yes, I fully recognize, especially here in Halifax, people have a long memory, and so they should, right? But at the same time, I think it's easier to reinvent yourself in a smaller city because of those industry pockets are smaller. So mm-hmm. if you want to switch, like for me to switch from advertising or when I switched from animation into advertising and marketing, literally all I did was go out of one building and go into the building next to it on Barrington street. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, right. You know what I mean? Like the, my boss, the CEO of the company that I was working for at the time made a phone call to that company for me because he knew that owner. Yeah. Right. It, 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 because here in Halifax, it's only three degrees of separation. It's not five. It's not eight. It's not six. It's three. Mm -hmm. You can get anything you want within three phone calls. Mm -hmm. If it's possible. Do you know what I mean? If you're not yeah. asking for yeah. land on the moon or something crazy, but like, <laughs> yeah. So speaking of that pivot, so you went from your marketing slash branding agency to now you're doing Canadian lumber. So what is Canadian lumber for the uh, <laughs> non-partakers? Um, Canadian lumber is a rolling paper company that I started three years ago. Uh, just, I shut down napkin just as I was turning 40 going through a midlife crisis kind of situation. Um, realized I wasn't happy. Realized that it was taking more from me than it was giving. Um, and I took a couple of years off and then started Canadian Lumber because I realized that there wasn't a Canadian company of rolling papers. That's the main reason why. Uh, I realized that with can- at that point in time, cannabis was not legal in the country, but it was a couple years out. And I thought if I didn't do this, someone else will. So I did it. Which is extremely smart. So you hear like what I'm picking up is Bo took a chance and said, this thing is coming. It doesn't exist. I'm going to, I'm going to put myself out there and be a leader instead of, following and waiting to see what someone else does and then try to do it after. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's, yeah, that's definitely part of it. But at the same time, like there wasn't a huge risk I felt. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, because the product already existed. It's not like I was reinventing the product or, I mean, it's not like I was inventing a new product, right? Rolling papers are already out in the market. So what I needed to do was reinvent that product. And so that I had, something that was unique to come to the table with. Okay. Check one. Two was that if I'm going to do this, that there had to be a sizable market for it. And with legalization coming, I knew that the taboo around cannabis around, with regards to our social fabric nationally would change. And if that's the case, how big is the rolling paper market right now? And how big will it be post legalization? This is what I was asking myself two years before legalization. Yeah. So I looked at how big that market is. I found out that it was, I think it was 2012, I got stats for it. It was around $62 million in revenue for the year nationally. Now, the thing that I looked at was the fact that almost all those numbers were coming from corner stores and gas stations. Very little of that number was coming from head shops. And because we didn't have dispensaries at the time, because it was illegal to have a dispensary at the time, none of that was coming from that. So how big will this market be after legalization? It's going to be at least double, if not more. Because of the simple fact we're going to have twice as many venues selling papers. Hmm. 
and then looking at what the potential market size was, looking at how big the audience was in Colorado, how many people smoked, how many people were buying, how big the accessory market was, that kind of thing. Um, and then the other big thing for me was I didn't want to start an LP. I didn't want to start something that was going to be direct cannabis products. Wait, let me there start. are a number of reasons for that. An LP? An LP, sorry, is a licensed producer. Okay. So like Canopy, Aurora, or even smaller ones like that we have out here in Atlantic Canada, like Breathing Green or smaller ones out on the West Coast as well. You know, a licensed producer. That means they've gone through the red tape. They are allowed to grow cannabis for the Crown Corp. Okay. Yeah. So for me was I didn't really want to do that because of I knew that that was going to have hurdles that were going to be a too big for me and b would the trajectory of having it take off was also too long for me from where I was at that point in time because you got to remember I, w I wasn't working I just shut down my agency you know I was freelancing a little bit but it like I needed, I needed real work yeah. for my own personal sanity. Do you know what I mean? For my personal constitution, I needed a regular, some regular work, something for me to dive into and feel proud about. And I realized very easily that, you know, doing an LP would be a little bit above, a little bit more than what I was willing to dive into. Right. And a big part of it was, too, was because I read uh, the Levi's. Have you read that book about Levi's that came out? Oh. A couple, it came out a while ago. It's basically about how Levi's started and how they've become such a big company in the, up to where they are now, right? Okay. So Levi's started in the gold rush at West, right? And the interesting thing is about that is when you look at the gold rush, there's not there's, there's really no one from the gold rush. Should there, I think there's maybe like a couple families that made it rich from the gold rush that are still a wealthy family now. Mm. Everyone else that had dug and panned and got gold or whatever else, it's all gone. Right. The companies that made money from the gold rush or the people that made money from the gold rush or the people that owned companies that were supplying people that were going out there for gold. Ah, uh, okay. Yes, I get where you're going. Levi's made money. The guy who started Levi's made Levi's jeans just for the miners. Mm. The reason why there's rivets, the reason why they're stitched a certain way, everything was for that industry. Like a certain the way the jeans are made are for that industry, right? Yeah. He made money. His brand's still around. His company's still around. It's become a legacy. Okay. It's the same thing with a couple of other companies. Uh, mining companies that come out of there that started as a shovel maker. Now they're a big equipment company, mm. that kind of thing. Right. Right. So realizing this about industry, because also at the time that book was fresh in my mind, I didn't want to do an LP because that felt like to me, I was panning for gold yeah. in the new cannabis industry. Right. And is, everyone's and, trying to get in there. And everyone's trying to pan for gold right now in the cannabis industry. Right. And I didn't just want to be another number waiting in line for my big pan to hit that river. Mm-hmm. Because if you weren't some of the first few, your slice of pie is extremely small. Right. Because the first handful of people cut themselves a really big piece of the pie, and then the, everyone else after that's getting what's left. Right. Okay. So I, I, I didn't want to be one of another one of those people. So I, right off the bat, I was thinking of how I could step into the cannabis industry. That's a with something that I feel proud about. B that I know is something that's it's going to be me. Then I won't have to fake it. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Yeah. And, and I've, I've always smoked cannabis. So, and I've always been the one pre-rolling joints showing up to a party, <laughs> showing up to the hip hop show with a pocket full of pre-roll. I was the guy every time for a bachelor party. The first thing I did as soon as we got into the hotel room was sitting down and rolling. <laughs> <laughs> So papers, in all honesty, is not that big of a stretch. <laughs> yeah, when you when you told me this is what you were planning on doing after napkin, I was like, okay, makes sense. <laughs> yeah, 
everyone, even my mother, even my mother was like, really? Actually, never mind. That makes sense. I'm like, really, mom? You're good? She was like, yeah, that makes sense. That's a smart move, Bo. I'm like, all right, mom, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I would say the other advantage you have, though, is your branding because you started showing me some of those early uh, package designs and, and ideas. And I was like, okay, he's on to, he's on to something because you really leaned into that idea of being Canadian and uh, what that might look like from a packaging standpoint. And um, the, uh, I know the business model has shifted in some ways, but I really like the idea of how you sort of branded different paper styles and stuff like that as well too. Yeah, it was, uh, I wanted, I wanted people to know that we were a Canadian registered company, that we were invested with Canadian funds, that there was no American influence in with our company because with other rolling papers in the market, there's a lot of American influence. Mm -hmm. Either they're, money for manufacturing some of they've got some investment money they or they're solely owned or whatever it may be you know you know like there's there's a fair amount of american involvement in the rolling paper industry yeah and at the time when i had launched there wasn't another canadian company now i have another Canadian competitor they're much smaller than i am at this point in time but it won't be long till they're a bigger company mm -hmm. and i'm looking forward to it because we need more canadian companies in this landscape mm -hmm. Since we're the first major country to legalize cannabis, we need more Canadian accessory companies. Yes. Yes. Steel sharpened steel and all that kind of good stuff. Yeah, so exactly. Where are you um, carried at this point? Uh, right now, where I'm national, right across the country, I'm carried exclusively with PEI, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Crown Corp. So that means in those provinces, because the Crown ha manages all of the sale of cannabis, so I'm in the Crown dispensary stores. Um, with Newfoundland, I have a preferred placement because uh, they're privatization. Uh, so that means that in the Crown distro, distro showroom, I have a big wall display, whereas everyone else is on one wall. <laughs> um, and... I am carried with every major chain that has sprung up across the country since legalization. And we are carried in almost 500, 800 dispensaries and head shops on top of that, like where it's privatized in those provinces. Um, and we're working on corner stores and gas stations now. We should have a good chunk of those come the new year. Uh, I love hearing this type of stuff, man. Like... <laughs> What people need to realize, right, Bo is one of these people who he, I would say you're one of the first people that I, and, and actually I haven't met too many others um, other than like following them online, but one of the first people I met in person who has, is you're an artist with a capital A, like you, this, this guy is, this guy is an artiste. Thanks, <laughs> Wayne. Um, <laughs> but at the same time like if you talk to him he really is serious about understanding business and breaking down numbers and doing research and and um showing uh he's good at justifying certain choices and getting getting investors on board for things and there's this myth that just because you are an artist or creative mind that you can't do both or shouldn't be interested in both. And, and Bo is a complete demonstration that you can be both. And I actively work towards trying to be both as well. Uh, so what are your thoughts on that? For me, it's an ongoing exercise. I feel like I'm always reminding myself that I need to think more business-like or be more creative. I feel like I'm always working both sides of that coin, Blaine. Mm. So the fact that you're saying it, pardon me, sorry? Well, I was gonna, I'll let you finish your thought and I'll, I'll ask the oh, question. Go ahead, go ahead. Well, I was just wondering if you ever feel like you're not enough because I feel like 
one at one moment I'm doing really well with business and I'm slipping in art. And I feel like I'm doing really well with art and I'm slipping in business. I wish I could both at the same time, you know? All the time. Mm. But with that said, like I don't I don't let myself feel guilty about it. I just turn around and be like, Okay, so I'm gonna carve out this afternoon and I'm gonna paint. Or I'm gonna carve out this afternoon and I'm going to give myself a design exercise. Mm-hmm. I still do that yeah. all the time. Okay. Right? Like even simple first year design exercises, give yourself a theme, design a poster. Mm-hmm. I, I still do that all the time, Dwayne. Okay. Give myself a get, create a company name and it does this and let's come up with seven logos in four hours. Mm-hmm. It's important. It's important. It's totally important. And then at the same time with that said, I, you know, I read business news. I study, I take out books all the time. Like there's on that side of it as well, because numbers is not my forte. Mm. Uh, I've always said that it, it, but business, being able to navigate in business doesn't take a knowledge of numbers. It takes the ability to recognize systems, patterns, and be able to build relationships. That's the first, that's the biggest part of business is, is the relationship building. And then at the same time to know your skill and your craft. Mm. Right. So if you do, you're able to sell it. Mm-hmm. Right? Cool. This idea that artists can't, shouldn't, that artists can't be business people. That's, uh, it's something that always bothered me. I even had a prof once when I was trying to get approval on one of my final theses that I had this thesis idea anyway, by the, I didn't get approval on. And during the, um, the committee presentation thing where you present your thesis to the committee kind of thing, I had one prof ask me because the, I, what I wanted to do was I wanted to do a whole series of photos where I built sets and the photos are very politically charged themes, that kind of thing. But then I was going to put them into a magazine, get actual advertisers for the magazine, but purposefully choose advertisers that conflict with my imagery. Mm. Right. And I wanted the whole final thing to be a comment on itself with regard to printed matter at the time. Right. And I had one prof asked me, he was like, so you're going to actually collect ad money. Yeah. Well, no, I'm not approving you then. I'm like, excuse me. He was like, well, it's not art. It's not fine art if you're getting paid for it like this. What? (laughs) I was like, excuse me. So fine artist is only allowed to get paid by what? By grants and art galleries. He was like, well, yeah, that's the system. I'm like, it doesn't have to be. No, it doesn't. Like I was stunned. I didn't know. I didn't even know what to say. Right. I didn't end up getting approval for that project. I ended up rewriting it, repitching it when the committee changed the next semester and I got approval for it in a different way. Mm. <laughs> but it was a different project by that point. But that's sad. That's why a lot of people we went to school with end up washing out of the creative industry if they're coming 100% with that mentality. Because not 100%. everyone get the grants. Someone's going to get them. Totally. Other people are not. Yep. And that's a whole other beast in itself. Knowing how to grant write and everything else. That's a, that's a skill. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's one thing like I wish even at NASCAD that they taught us. Yeah. I wish they taught us grant writing and everything else, but they don't like, yeah. that would be an amazing class. to that have. Is a, that is a great class idea. <laughs> right. But they don't do it. I, I asked for that as a student. I know a lot of other students did. Mm. You know, as an alumni, I've brought it up a couple times in the right environment. Not very often, I admit, but a couple times. Mm. But also at the same time, like I did that art and entrepreneurship class that NASCAD offered. That was a fucking joke. Yeah, I did that too. And I didn't really get much out of it. I, though I, I will take responsibility for my part because I thought, I'm not going to be a business owner. I'm going to get hired by an agency and make a lot of money. So I don't need this course. Yeah. So... <laughs> Yeah, for me, it was I was a little miffed because I was working part-time as an event coordinator at the time, mm-hmm. and the person teaching the class, the course, the first thing out of that visiting professor's mouth was the fact that they had a business that failed and now they're teaching. Oh, God. 
Yeah, that, that, that was the first <laughs> afternoon with that person. I was like, so why are you teaching this class then? What's your business knowledge? <laughs> you weren't able to balance books. Uh, yeah. Right? Like, I got nothing out of that class. I dropped it pretty quickly. I took it for a month and I dropped it right before the deadline. Yeah. Like, that, that was useless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Meanwhile, you- here, especially for me, because I was working, I was, yeah, <laughs> as a professional artist and working at the same time, applying my art. Maybe I wasn't working as a photographer working as an event coordinator, but I'm still designing and developing and producing creatively. Right. And I just laughed. I'm like, uh, yeah, this isn't working because I'm working as a creative. I'm billing, I'm invoicing, I'm collecting, I'm paying taxes on it. Like, come on. Yeah. Yeah. You, 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 I don't know. For me, I really underestimated how important those type of skills would be. Because uh, I had that same, I went into NASCAD with that that mentality of artists not needing to make money in a lot of ways. But then I just assumed as a graphic designer, it would just work itself out and I would be paid a fair wage and I wouldn't have to think about any of that kind of stuff. And it's just not true. It's not true. Even if I didn't start a business, you still need to understand like whether you're being compensated fairly. Cause that's the other thing is when I started 100%. applying for jobs, I realized that what people were offering was not, um, was not enough for me to pay rent. So yeah. it, it was like, there's this whole, you start to realize that man, as a whole, you've got artists who don't value themselves. You've got an industry that doesn't value you. You got people who hire artists who don't value what you're doing. At some point, someone's got to advocate for the artist. So it's like, I guess we got to train ourselves to advocate for ourselves. I was just going to say that no one will except for us. Yeah. Period. Yeah. Right. And and that's something that I think I realized that very early on, though. Um, and I don't know why or when specifically, because I did behave differently when it came to billing for my art. I had a lot of people that, you know, I always made sure I gave a budget ahead of projects. And a lot of people scoff and say, what, I'm paying you this much an hour? I'm like, I've done six years of art school. Um, I've got this many years of experience. You're coming to me because of this education and experience. This is what it costs. Yeah. If you don't want to pay this, you want to pay something else, that value means you're getting someone without this education and with maybe six months experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just blatantly telling people that. Yeah. I, and I admit, Dwayne, it was, and you know this, for, for me as a freelancer, that was difficult at first because there's money you're turning down. Yeah. Money that could have bought groceries. Yeah. But you do it a couple of times, you get used to that. And then when you start to bill yourself out at the rate that's justified for your experience, justified for your talent, and is enough for you to sustain yourself, then you start building that client base that expects to pay you at that rate. Yeah. I- I even have people scoff at my t-shirt prices sometimes. I'm at the point though in, in, um, I don't know, maybe this is me. Maybe I'm starting to go full capitalist, but I feel almost like I wouldn't be mad at anybody for charging anything for anything. <laughs> oh no, dude, I'm like, not at all. I never am. market will pay, then get your money is what I feel. Um, it's, it's it's not just that it's it's because the value of a product it doesn't necessarily mean doesn't necessarily come from what goes into that product 90% of value is perceived yes absolutely and and it's a matter of 
whether the audience for that specific product accepts the perceived value or not. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's, I can totally understand how a designer could turn around and design a t-shirt like cause, like take cause for example. Yeah. Does t-shirts with Uniqlo. They're $20. Yeah. He turns around and sells a statue for 15 grand. Mm -hmm. And it's a tiny little thing that sits down inside your plant. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And, And that makes sense to me though, because, because of the value that's perceived for those products. Absolutely. One's a fine art sculpture statue. One is a high fashion, not, not, it's not even high fashion, it's a mix between high fashion and fa- fast fashion, to be honest with you. It's more fast fashion than high fashion. And so, yeah, $20 makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And, um, yeah, it, it kind of, it, it's interesting. Like, we would, we would understand if you say uh, a, a diamond is worth $3,000. And it's a rock, basically. But yeah. if, oh, no, not basically. It is <laughs> rock. <laughs> rock. Yeah, but but a, an art piece that someone spilled their soul into, like a painting or, or whatever the case, or something else, and you, they want to charge three grand for it, you'd be like, "I'm not paying for that." Are you crazy? Yeah. No. Yeah. Part of that too, though, is, is the diamond. We have been trained from years of marketing that the diamond has more value than any other rock. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Tiffany. Tiffany's has done an exceptional job of doing that. <laughs> <laughs> exceptional job of doing it. Yes. Uh, on that note, so let's finish it up. Were you um, any any crazy new things you got in, in the works that we should know about um i don't know i wasn't ready for that question (laughs) i mean canadian lumber has lots of products that'll be coming out through the summer through through till and christmas right up until christmas actually so i'll I'll be tripling the catalog Mm -hmm. uh the product list throughout this year um Personally, other side projects. I do have a couple, but none that I'm prepared to talk about at this point. Okay. Okay. You. <laughs> you know me, Dwayne. I can't. I, I'll always have at least a couple of other projects on the go. Yeah, you know, and I'm the same way. I can relate 100. percent You know, if I was doing RPAs me full time, I would invent something new that I need to do uh, on the side of my desk. <laughs> Yeah, 100%. 100%. The thing I do enjoy right now with Canadian Lumber is the fact that it is allowing me to, you know, some of the new t-shirt designs and other clothing product stuff that I'm doing, I've just put it more underneath the Canadian Lumber umbrella than it underneath me personally. Mm, okay. Um, some of it is because I, I – and it's – it's because I'm creatively enjoying designing and building for a specific audience. Mm. And I, I really enjoy that. Yeah. It, it is. I just, I really enjoy it, Dwayne. I can't get over it. Like from um, collaborations we're doing with bag companies where I'm able to tailor that to what I feel would be great for Canadian audience. Cool. Right. The shirts and that kind of thing. And yeah, it's fun. Cool. Cool. Nice. So where um, can my people find out about Canadian Lumber and you? Any social media links you have or anything like that? Sure. Uh, Canadian Lumber can be found in all social media as CDN Lumber. Um, And the website is cdnlumber.ca. People can find me personally uh, with underneath my artist moniker, and that's B.B. Rossworth. R-O-S-K-E-W-O-R-T-H. B.B. Rossworth. Okay. And that website for that is bbrossworth.com. Cool. 
Bo, thanks a lot, man. I hope uh, my audience will get something out of this. Uh, and um, the, just this whole idea that artists can can look like so different in so many and have you know present in, in so many different ways that I think is really dope about like your story. So uh, yeah, thanks again for coming on our pacing, man. Thank you so much, Dwayne, for having me. It's been a pleasure. All right, peace. Hi, man. Peace. Thank you so much for listening to the Art Pays Me podcast. Thank you to Langey Beats for the theme music. If you got anything out of this show, please rate, review, and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. The more you do this, the more reach the podcast gets, and the more artists I can help learn to make a living at what they love. If you want to know more about what I do, hit me up at artpaysme.com or at artpaysme on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Pinterest. See y'all next time.